0: you will in Isaiah chapter 55 there will be some scriptures here that I'm sure you'll be familiar with but we want to back up to verse 6 and uh, kind of get it in context God speaking to the prophet Isaiah and he says seek ye the Lord while he may be found call ye upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God Return unto God, in other words, for he will abundantly pardon. Now notice verse 8. We see the context now of what verse 8 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Notice what he's talking about. The context of thinking God's thoughts is to turn away from wickedness so that God can be good to you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. Now notice the connection, he's talking about thinking God's thoughts, and he's pointing us back to the word. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. That word void means empty. It's talking about empty of power or void of power. But it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Um, Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 4. I want you to see some things. and, And it may not be news to anybody. That's fine. I'm not trying to bring something brand new each time but I've been struck over the last couple of days and been meditating for a few days on being teachable and I'll show you why why I'm uh, going that direction and talking about it like that but there's so many times so many examples that we've got in scripture of people not being open to the truth here's one in Luke chapter 4 Let's start in verse sixteen, talking about Jesus, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day to read. It, on the Sabbath day, and stood up for to read, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives." And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all the eyes and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we've uh, I made mention of this before. Uh, I don't want to make a big deal about it because there's no way to verify it. We can't prove it, but it is said. That just like at the uh, Passover ritual for Israel, there's a table, a place setting there for Elijah. Well, in the same way, it has been reported that in the synagogues, they had a special seat that's reserved for the Messiah. Of course, nobody ever sat in it. And uh, and as I understand that uh, history shows, Jesus sat down in the Messiah's seat, where it says, the eyes of all them were fastened on him in the synagogue. Well I guess so. Because by that one action he's sitting down in the Messiah's seat and then says this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So in other words he reads a scripture a passage of scripture that everybody knows is related to the Messiah and the Messiah only. And then he sits in the Messiah's seat and says these scriptures are talking about me. I don't think we have another example in the Bible where it is so clear cut where Jesus is identifying himself as the the Christ, the Son of God. So it says they were all fastened their eyes on him and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Notice their reaction in verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Now the word gracious there means wonderful, but it means supernatural too the the word that's used here has an element of beyond something that you would expect in a normal circumstance so they recognized that what he said that there was something to it, there was something special about it I I don't know exactly what that would be, I'm I'm sure we'd we'd be safe by saying he's preaching an anointed word but then we wouldn't have any reason to think that the people would recognize what an anointing is one way or the other. They sure haven't seen much of it. So they all wondered at the gracious words which were seated out of his mouth and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, now this is significant for me because the thing that's on my heart and the thing that I've uh, um, experience in so many ways is the devil trying to talk you out of what the Bible says you ever had the devil try to do that to you find something good and he'll say that was just for the Jews or you find something in the New Testament and the devil says well yeah that would apply but you know you've been bad you know you've fallen short or whatever the case might be typically I think I'm safe in saying this. You judge this for yourself. But typically, people that fail to receive the word fail to receive because their minds are closed to anything other than what they think. And it's not a real common thing for people, and it's very much age-related, but it's not a common thing for people to be willing to change their thinking. Most people think that whatever they think is right And so they're going to stick with it no matter what. So they asked, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in thy country. So Jesus knows they've heard about what's happening in Capernaum. He knows they've heard about the miracles. Capernaum was one of the places that he had more ministry results, more miracles and healings and stuff than any other place. And he knows they've heard about it. So he says, I know you're going to say to me, do the things here that you did in Capernaum. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent except unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except or saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. Now notice the shift that's taken place. In verse 22, I believe it is, they're all wise. They've reasoned among themselves as to why Jesus couldn't be the Messiah No, we know his dad the Old Testament prophecy was that Jesus would be born of a virgin we know that Joseph is his dad so this can't be right about him they're operating in such earthly wisdom they think they know and because of what they think they know they're not going to be open to anything now Jesus deals with them pretty sharply so much so that their wisdom turns to anger their closed mind to the truth of what Jesus is saying then turns into anger and they try to kill him they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon the city was built that they might cast him headlong but he passing through the midst of them went his way now We can turn there if you want to. I I don't really think we need to. But in Mark chapter 6, it tells us about this same occurrence. Mark's account, chapter 6, doesn't go into the detail of what he preached, what Luke 4, 18 and 19 tell us about. But Mark's account goes something like this. And he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't, it says he couldn't. And he could there do no mighty work, save or accept. He laid his hands on a few sickly folks. That word sickly means people that didn't have too much wrong with them. In other words, he didn't heal any cripples there, but maybe he healed a headache. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we'll look at both cases. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word unbelief... One meaning or one uh, uh, definition of the word unbelief is the word unpersuadableness. They wouldn't be persuaded. I guess that's why Jesus dealt so harshly with them. He knew that they weren't just wrong but open to the truth. He knew they were wrong and wanted to stay wrong. So he couldn't do any mighty work, didn't have any great healing no miracles no blind eyes open no cripples healed that type of thing no lepers cleansed and the only thing he could do is get a few folks with minor ailments healed turn back with me to the Old Testament Genesis chapter 3 God has created the earth he finishes up by creating man he makes an end of everything that he made after the sixth day, looks at it and says it's very good. Now the condition that God called very good is there was nothing to harm or hurt his people. I wonder if God has continued that same idea of very good. If God's creation, untainted by sin, was such that mankind, or at least the representatives of mankind, Adam and Eve, There was nothing in the garden that could hurt them. There was no such thing as sickness and disease. It was an ideal creation. Well, if God thought that was very good in the beginning, he'd still have to think that condition is very good now, wouldn't he? That's the way he wants it to be for us. Beginning in verse 1, troubles on the horizon here. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit now folks realize something let me interject something right here. God made the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's nothing wrong with the tree. It shouldn't have been a surprise to Eve to find that it looked like it had good fruit on it. Everything God made was good. Everything God made was perfect. The tree's perfect. It had nothing to do with the kind of fruit or the result of the fruit. It was all about God's command and God's instructions. So she looks at it, and apparently, at least it implies, this is the first time she's ever taken a good look. What makes her stop and take a look? The devil tried to bring an accusation against God. Now I'm going to put my own interpretation on this a little bit, but you judge this for yourself and see if it's not true. The devil implies that God's been holding out on them. The devil implies that he didn't give them the whole story. That there's more to this tree than just stay away from it. And what does Eve do? Here's the devil trying to reason with her To rob her of something that is good and and, and, Well it's perfect He knows what he's after She apparently doesn't But notice how the devil works The devil works by trying to reason With you Against God It's the only thing that he's got And so she looked at the tree, she saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Boy, that's a tough statement. She thinks disobeying God is going to make her wise. When she saw all these things, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat and the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed big leaves together and made themselves aprons. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians about not being ignorant of of Satan's devices. He told us that we need to put on the armor of God to be able to stand against the wiles or the trickery or the deception of the enemy. What is the deception of the enemy? How does, and the Bible says 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is the God of this world, doesn't mean God of the planet, doesn't even mean God of the world system. It means he's the ruler of the earth for a period of time. He has authority. We don't know the extent of his authority, but we know that he told Jesus at the temptation in, in Matthew chapter 4. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, all these are under my authority. He said, because it's been delivered unto me. Only place I can find that might fit that is at the point where Adam and Eve fall in the garden. He does gain a place of authority, but I don't think it's nearly what he claims it to be or what the church seems to think that it is. But notice how he works. The one means of deception If he can't get you to reason against God, he can't stop anything and everything God has for you. The devil's number one trick, he uses circumstances, he uses uh, feelings, he uses emotions. But the one thing that he's got is to try to get you to reason against God. let me show you another example look with me to Numbers chapter 13 this is the story of the 12 spies that go into the promised land they've come right up to the edge of it at Kadesh Barnea starting in verse 17 Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them get you up this way southward and go into the mountain and see the land what it is And the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many. And what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first striped grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin under Rehob as the men come to Hamath and as they ascended by the south and came up unto Hebron where three guys the children of Anak were now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt and they came into the brook of Eskel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they bare it between two upon a staff And they brought the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the Brook Eskel because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said we came unto the land whither thou sentest us they're talking to Moses now and surely it flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it nevertheless the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great and moreover we saw the children of Anak there the Amalekites dwelt in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went with went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature... And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Let's keep reading over in chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land. They were two of the twelve. They rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we have passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For they are bread for us, their defenses departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Now let's think about what they've done. The 12 flies have gone in. They've all seen the same thing. Ten of them come back and say the people are too strong. The walls around the cities are too great. We can't do it. They go into great detail to, to describe that they felt like they were grasshoppers in the sight of the, the people of, the, of Canaan that inhabited or dwelt therein in Canaan. And they assume that that's the way that the people inside the walls saw them as well. It tells about the evil report. That they brought up. What was this evil report? Paul, writing about this in Hebrews, says that they couldn't un- enter in because of unbelief. And that unbelief is the same unpersuadableness that we saw in Luke chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. They would not be persuaded. But here's the question How is it that Caleb and Joshua didn't need to be persuaded? How is it that they took a different position than the tent? What's the difference? We know what the, tw- what the ten were persuaded by. They were persuaded by the size of the people, the number of the people, the walls around the cities, and so forth. That's what persuaded them. But what made the difference with Caleb and Joshua? Look in chapter 14. Let's reread a couple of scriptures. You see verse 8 of chapter 14. It says, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give us give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. There are different words that are used for the word if in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And in both languages, one of the words that's often used, Paul uses it a lot. One of the words that's often used is a declaration, not a condition. What I mean by that is if we read it at face value, And just accept the first word of the verse, verse 8, to be if. It sounds like Joshua saying, well, if God's on our side, then we'll wind up with the land. So how is he going to know whether or not God's on their side? Fight for the land, and if they get it, then then God was there? And honest to goodness, that looks to me like the way that a lot of Christians live. They have the idea that if God wants them to have something, or if God wants them to, to go somewhere or do something then he'll make it happen. If God wants me healed, then he'll heal me. But there's no faith exercise on the part of the individual. They really don't know what God will have to be. They really don't know what the will and the purpose of God is. And so they're left with the unhappy dilemma that we'll just have to wait and see the results and then we'll form our ideas about God after that. And folks, nobody can receive that way. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to receive from God. And you can't have faith with if on your lips. But this is a declaration word. uh, A better translation is the word lo. L-O. Where he's saying, he's declaring, lo, the Lord is with us and will bring us into this land. He's not making an if-then statement. Now there are times in the Bible where if-then statements are made but this isn't one of them and you can't find any of them associated with receiving or taking hold of the promises of God so Caleb and Joshua have something that the others don't have what do they have that the others are missing the ten are missing they've allowed themselves to be persuaded the other ten went into the land without a conviction one way or the other Now Caleb and Joshua didn't develop their conviction by looking at the walls around the city of Jericho. They didn't establish their conviction when they saw the cluster of grapes or the figs or the pomegranates. They didn't establish their conviction when they looked at how many Amalekites there were and Jebusites and Hittites and whoever else. They were already persuaded before they ever went in. They were already prepared whatever it takes because God is on their side now at this point in time it's about two years after he's delivered them maybe two and a half years after God's delivered them from Egypt after the Red Sea was parted they came across on dry ground from the time that uh, Israel comes through the Red Sea to the point where they get to the promised land it's probably about two and a half years they go from there, from the crossing of the Red Sea, to Mount Sinai, and that's where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. But remember when Moses brought them down from the mountaintop, the people had made golden calves and all kinds of stuff, and it turned away from God. So they've got a dilemma, and I'm talking about the Ten and the rest of the congregation. They've got a dilemma. Their dilemma is, is God still mad at us about that golden calf stuff? Or is he merciful like he said? And will he do what he promised? Well, which way do you think the devil's arguing with them in their minds? And that seems to me to be a lot of the reason why many Christians pull back from reaching out and taking hold of the things of God they're persuaded about themselves something that the Bible says is not true and so in this case at least they're expecting God to hold out they're expecting God to withhold from them Caleb and Joshua are remembering the Red Sea Caleb and Joshua are remembering that an atonement was made. Caleb and Joshua remember very well that God provided for them with water coming out of the rock and so forth. And so they're making a statement of declaration. They're saying God is with us. Remember that Red Sea thing? God is with us. You remember every day since we left the Red Sea and went to Mount Sinai, we've seen the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. See, they're allowing themselves to be persuaded. They're allowing themselves to develop the conviction of who they are in God's eyes based on what God had done and not on how they felt. And notice that their conviction was already established. Verse 8 would probably better read, because the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Now for me, that changes the meaning of this verse altogether. I can see why most Christians would stick with the, the original reading. If God wants it, then something will happen. But that's really not what Caleb and Joshua are saying. They already know that God's on their side. They already know that God sent them to the promised land. And the reason he sent them to the promised land is to take the land. He's prepared it for them. So what do they do? After making their declaration, verse 9, only rebel ye not against the Lord. What is rebelling against God? God. Refusing to believe that he is who he says he is. Refusing to believe that what the Bible says is yours is really yours. And notice it says, only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. Don't be afraid of the people because God's for us. But don't turn away. Don't allow yourself to be persuaded. Don't let the devil reasoning in your eyes or in your mind talk you out of what God has said he would do. And folks, that's the way the devil always operates. It's the way he always operates. The only example we've got that the devil didn't operate that way is when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus' temptation was threefold. First of all, he was tempted to misuse his power to turn stones into bread. Then he was tempted to exalt himself, draw attention to himself by casting himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And then finally he was tempted with the kingdoms of the world and the authority of the earth's kingdoms. Now see, the devil thought that's the best you can get. The devil thought the authority over the kingdoms of the earth, that's the prize. But it wasn't. Still isn't. So Jesus responds each time to to the first temptation. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Actually, what he said is it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He used the word to refute the reasonings of the devil. Then he's about the pinnacle of the temple. He said, after Satan tempted him to throw himself down because the word says, The angels will bear thee up in their wings, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said, it's also written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Then finally, with the last temptation, the authority of the kingdoms of the world. Satan said, I'll give all this to you if you'll just kneel down and worship me. Jesus said, it is written. God's the only one to worship. Him and none other. So we see the same principle in, in Jesus' defense or resistance to temptation. He was prepared with the word before the temptation ever came. Interestingly enough, the devil did not try to talk Jesus into thinking wrong about God like he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. I think that Satan knew enough about who Jesus was to think and to understand that that would be a wasted effort. I don't know really what Satan knew about Jesus at that point in time. He couldn't have known everything about him because he wouldn't have taken the position that he took in so many cases, especially at the cross. The Bible even says if Satan knew what the cross, Jesus dying on the cross would do, he never would have crucified him. So he didn't have an eyes open understanding of everything that was going on relative to Jesus here on the earth. But otherwise, every other place we see the devil interacting with mankind, he's always bringing an accusation against them or against God. He's always reasoning with someone, everyone, you, me, everybody else. He's always trying to reason with us to take sides against God or to make us believe that God took sides against us. We all know that when we're believing for things, and they take longer to come around than what we want them to. The devil will try to make you believe that it's God's problem and God's fault, that things aren't working as quickly as they should. He'll try to get you to take sides against God, Because of the circumstances of our faith. Caleb and Joshua were not willing to be persuaded by the devil's reasonings. They didn't refute anything the 10 said. They didn't say, oh, guys, the walls aren't that big. They just said, God's with us. Who cares how big the walls are? Who cares how many people there are? This is the land that God said he'd give to us and it is exactly what he said that it was. A land flowing with milk and honey. Surely this is a land flowing with milk and honey. But that's the point where so many people allow themselves to be talked out of God's blessings. Let me show you a contrast. Look with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. There's a messianic term. Anytime somebody calls him the son of David, they're identifying with him as the Messiah. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered her and said, It is not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread, which healing and deliverance must be the children's bread, and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. What does Jesus commend this woman for? He commends her for pleading her case based on what he said. He commends her for not letting herself get discouraged and walk away without the answer that she went for. He commends her because she stands firm in her convictions about who Jesus is and what God sent him here to the earth to do. Now in my thinking, and maybe there's stuff I don't see about this or understand about this event, but in my thinking, I see Jesus saying several times no. No. No, I'm sent first to the lost sheep of Israel. Does that stop her? She falls down and worships him and says, Lord, help me. She realizes God is the same, whether it's Jews or Gentiles, no matter what Jesus is sent to do first or foremost or whatever, she understands that the delivering power that she must have heard exercised in Jesus' ministry she's got to believe that God's no respecter of persons or else she would have gone to Jesus kind of sheepishly and said Jesus my daughter really needs help but I'm not a Jew but that doesn't seem to enter into her thinking she doesn't waste one minute on that she just says Lord help me then he says, it's not appropriate it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs and look how she turns it around I mean, that's good reasoning. I don't know if she's aware of this scripture or not, but in Isaiah 43, God said, come, let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. In other words, God wants us to bring his word to him. Just as we started in Isaiah 55, the word of God will not return unto him void. How does the word of God return to Him when we speak it? And he said, it's not void of power. It's not empty, ever. There's always power in his word. And so when Jesus tells her it's not appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs, she uses his words to reason why she should be able to receive for her daughter. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus, even though he sent first to Israel, not to the, the Gentiles... Jesus recognizes her faith, he commends her faith, he commends her for reasoning out why the blessings of God should be hers, and honest to goodness folks, they're not supposed to be, not at that point in time, but she did that which most people, well few people do, A lot of people enter into the devil's reasoning about why it shouldn't be theirs. Whatever it is they seek. but She reasoned with God why it should be hers. And it was. Let me read you a verse of scripture. In Nahum chapter 1. I don't want to read the whole thing, but let me start in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. He's talking about delivering his people from their enemies and and the people that are uh, oppressing them. Notice verse 9. What do you imagine against the Lord? What do you imagine against the Lord? Other translations say something like, what reasonings or what thoughts have you devised against God? Seems to be a universal thing. Because that's always the devil's work. That's always the way the devil wants to approach things. And so here's the prophet Speaking for God, saying, what do you imagine against the Lord? Why are you thinking about wrong things and bad things about God? Why do you imagine or what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. In other words, God's saying, why are you thinking anything else about me? Why are you devising evil reasonings or vain imaginations? Why are you thinking wrong about me? Here's who I am. I'll make an utter end of your enemies. I'll make an utter end of this situation that faces you. So much so that affliction shall not rise again the second time. We'll take care of this thing once and for all. So why are you thinking bad about me? That's exactly where the devil wants you folks. He wants you thinking bad about God when it's God that's on your side. He wants you to cozy up with him. Because of timing or whatever. Any other number of excuses that we could make. He wants to make you think that God's not holding up his end of the deal. But we know that God through Jesus' sacrifice has made an utter end of whatever is coming against us. I love that phrase. Affliction shall not rise again the second time. I'm going to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know these verses in verse 4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. God says that we have weapons that can pull down Satan's defenses. Now, what is Satan's defense? Reasonings. Deceit. Trickery. That's all he's got, folks. He can't make you do anything. He can't keep you from doing anything. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he points out that they've changed the word change the instructions of God to suit their own needs or their own wants he uses as an example the scripture that says honor your father and mother but the Jews developed a practice where you could pay off your mom and your dad and then wouldn't have to take care of them or honor them or whatever and Jesus says this and, and that's not the only one he said many other such things like this you do but Jesus said something about that that I think is interesting he said he said you've made the word of God of none effect through your traditions. Through your traditions. Now what are traditions? Traditions are just things that they've accepted to be true instead of the word. And just like the unbelief of Nazareth kept Jesus from having any healing miracles when he went there, reasonings against God will rob you of the blessings that Jesus paid for You've made the word of God of none effect through your traditions. One secondary meaning of that word traditions is reasonings. You've thought this thing through. You've developed your own brand of wisdom. And you've made the word of God, which which Paul said was the power of God to salvation. Every aspect of salvation comes through the word. The word that is never void of power never returns to God, void of power. The most powerful thing in the universe, which is the word of God, that made everything from the unseen realm that we can see here and now in this realm. He made the most powerful force in the universe, powerless because of the way you reason things out. Folks, what we think about it is huge. The necessity to think and speak God's word is huge. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every high thing would certainly include the, the reasonings of the devil where he's trying to make you think that God's against you or he's the bad guy or whatever those are the high things that exalt itself against the word and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ we're going to have to guard our thoughts we're going to have to renew our minds to the word We're going to have to believe what God's word says no matter what, no matter how long, no matter how difficult, no matter what. And if the Syrophoenician woman is any example, our willingness to do that commends us unto God. Acts chapter 4 tells us when they, Peter and John were beaten and let go from the council, the Jewish council. After the man was healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. Part of Peter's prayer is, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? That's a quote from Psalm 2. Where David wrote, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? He goes on a couple of verses later and says, He who sits in the heaven laughs at people's vain imaginations. It doesn't say that God rushes in when the wrong thought comes. He rushes in with a replacement thought. And that's our job, not his. But when the devil's trying to reason you out of the things of God, when he's trying to reason you out of thinking that God is on your side again because of time, delay, whatever God laughs well if God laughs, shouldn't we? shouldn't we be imitators of God in that respect? shouldn't we be like Jesus and have a quick and ready answer from what the word says and then just laugh at the devil? I believe we should Those are God's thoughts and God's ways. And he gave us the word so that we could emulate him. Never will God be anything other than on your side. He's not the one withholding good things. So why should we imagine vain things against the Lord? He has made an utter end affliction shall not rise a second time I love that verse let's pray Father thank you so much for your word we thank you Father in the precious and holy name of Jesus that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law we've been redeemed from every evil work every evil thing and even though we sometimes trip and fall Father we always get back up knowing that your forgiveness endures forever we thank you Father Father Even as Paul said that you are on our side. Who do we have to fear? Who cares what man will try to do to us? You're on our side. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of holding fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Because you are faithful that promised. We love you, Father. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us.